Hey everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Brendan Carr. Today's guest is Dr. Dominic D'Agostino. Dom is a professor at the University of South Florida. He is a NASA aquanaut, and he has done research into dietary changes that have helped Navy SEALs to prevent seizures when diving. In this episode, Dom tells us about how to have a vision for the contribution you will make as a leader. He tells us about the importance of trying things for yourself before asking others to do them. And he tells us how leaders can create a culture where people are resilient and able to thrive in change. And before we roll this episode, uh, there's a disclaimer that needs to be said because Dom and I get into a lot of heavy science, medical stuff. I want to be very clear that this is in no way a substitute for speaking to your doctor, getting medical advice from your doctor. This show is not meant to give you medical advice, nor does it represent any official views or opinions of the United States Navy or the United States Department of Defense or the government in general. So that's our disclaimer. I'll roll another one at the end just to be sure. So Dom, how did you end up working with Navy SEALs? I came in from sort of the, the back end point, like uh, the Office of Navy Research. They fund uh, projects under a particular program called the Undersea Medicine Program, and that's for warfighter performance and safety. And uh, I was an avid diver as a PhD student, and my under or my postdoctoral fellowship research was really developing technologies funded by the Department of Defense and the Navy that would allow us to study the problems that the Navy SEAL divers have, uh, and and also deep sea divers. So that could be oxygen toxicity as it pertains to the pulmonary system, oxygen toxicity as it pertains to the brain, which causes seizures, decompression sickness, nitrogen narcosis, high pressure nervous syndrome. So these are all things that I studied sort of intensely in my postdoctoral fellowship years. And uh, my project was funded to really study fundamentally uh, oxygen toxicity seizures. And we don't know why they occur. And at the time, we didn't know how to prevent them or how to predict them and prevent them. So uh, that led me down a path to basically look into anti-seizure strategies and to, you know, uh, being funded by the Navy is a little different than funded by the National Institutes of Health, where you know, you're required to just publish high-impact peer-reviewed papers and get papers out. The military wants a deliverable, <laughs> so they want some little widget or uh, deliverable at the end of your study to say, look, you know, the guys can take this out to the field and it can apply to them, or they can move it, whatever you develop, into a, a, a large animal model, like they study pigs, for example. So uh, <clears throat> so my research initially really with the Navy SEALs and, and Office of Navy Research was to do very fundamental science uh, in their basic science program and uh, to develop an anti-seizure neuroprotective strategy. So I was mostly focused on drugs at the time, but I realized that the anti-seizure drugs are really not very good for people with epilepsy or other seizure disorders. And uh, in the process of looking, in the process of actually helping a friend in the UK in 2008 or six, seven and eight, uh, I suggested the ketogenic diet just by looking to see what do people 
uh, do who have drug refractory or drug resistant epilepsy. And I discovered the ketogenic diet, which I thought I knew about Atkins, and but I didn't actually know the history of the ketogenic diet as a very powerful metabolic based program or you know nutrition therapy that can prevent seizures. And it was developed in the 1920s. And uh, I decided to pitch this to the military as a neuroprotective strategy. And it took it took about two years from you know initial thought and studying and pitching it. It took about two and a half years, two years to get funding for that. So right now, you know, going back about 10 years ago, eight, eight years ago, uh, the, the initial funding was to develop, to understand why oxygen toxicity occurs, uh, biomedical countermeasures that can prevent oxygen toxicity, and then the last, you know, five years, developing specific things, formulas that the warfighter can take by mouth that will instantly produce uh, therapeutic ketosis to enhance their uh, protection against oxygen toxicity, cognitive performance, physical performance, uh, anti-inflammatory effects, because that's a problem too. So we're looking into a wide range of things on a particular you know, class of compounds and how that can be used specifically in the context of extreme environments. So as it pertains to the undersea environment, but now we're working with NASA and the space environment, you know, Air Force, AFRL, you know, altitude. So uh, that's that's kind of like the, the very, very general picture. And <laughs> we have lots of research projects that are run by undergrads, medical students, PhD students, postdoctoral fellows. And then we collaborate with people all over the United States and all over the world, actually. And we have a human study going on at Duke University right now, looking at, for example, nutritional ketosis in humans to prevent oxygen toxicity. I, I do a lot of rat studies in the lab, but we have actually got to the point now where we're developing and moving some of these strategies into more like human factors uh, training uh, or, or experimentation. Wow. I, I, I want to talk more specifically about what it is, that, how, how this came about that Navy SEALs getting seizures. I don't, I don't think people necessarily make that connection with diving. Yeah, absolutely. So if you just you know do a search on central nervous system oxygen toxicity or CNS oxygen toxicity, uh, we know that oxygen toxicity of the CNS is a limitation of hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which has about 14 different FDA-approved applications. So you have things like decompression sickness, right? If you get the bends, you got to put somebody in a chamber, press them, and then bring them back up, you know, to surface uh, to prevent little bubbles from forming. That's called uh, the bends or decompression sickness. That's one application. Wound healing is probably the most popular, most, you know, used application. Uh, ischemic wounds, diabetic wounds, radiation necrosis as it pertains to cancer treatment, uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. So if you can, for example, think of carbon monoxide poisoning. So the carbon monoxide attaches to the hemoglobin molecule and it's starving your body of oxygen, right? So how do you get that molecule off? It binds very tightly. You gotta put the person inside a hyperbaric chamber, press them with the maximum 
partial pressure of oxygen that you can you can use, right? But that a limitation of how high you can get the oxygen level would be oxygen toxicity seizures. So you can really only go up to about three atmospheres of, of oxygen. Uh, so we're right now, I'm breathing air, which is 0.20 ATA of oxygen, it's 20% oxygen. When you're breathing 100% oxygen, that's actually five times higher the level of oxygen that you're breathing. And it's not toxic unless you're in a hyperbaric environment. So uh, the partial pressure of oxygen is a function of the barometric pressure and the concentration, right? So you factor those together, and that's that's hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And it's a very oxygen's a drug. It's a very powerful drug, and it uh, at a certain level it becomes toxic to humans. So so oxygen so. Navy SEAL divers are kind of unique in that they use a closed circuit rebreather, and meaning that the the advantage is a stealth component. They can be underwater and there's no bubbles coming up, right? Uh, the disadvantage is that the oxygen concentration is very high. So it's uh, like for a Draeger rebreather and similar units, it's 100% oxygen. So if they go down to just 50 feet of seawater, they have the potential to have an oxygen seizure within 10 to 12 minutes. So that's not a lot of time, right? It's just 50 feet of seawater. Typically, they, they dive pretty shallow, but in the event that the water is very clear and you have people looking for you overhead or you're taking fire or you got to dive down to a ship or a bridge and, and plant a mine, you got to go deeper than that occasionally. So uh, to enhance the safety and performance and success of the mission, you know, we want to be able to uh, to ensure that the that these units can be used without the potential of oxygen toxicity seizures. These closed circuit rebreathers, and uh, we don't know how really to predict it. So, if you could wear a little widget <laughs> that could, for example, detect uh, heart rate variability or EEG activity or uh, you know respiratory rhythm generation, or you know, we know that. There are perturbations in respiratory control that precede uh, a seizure, you know, from animal data. So we're working on little strategies to predict the seizures, but most importantly, we're working on strategies that can give more bottom time to the guys out in the field using this type of equipment and making it safer for them. Uh, and the development of these technologies, these uh, these countermeasures against oxygen toxicity have utility for hyperbaric oxygen therapy, making it safer and making it possible to allow people to get uh, a much higher concentration of oxygen to, uh, to treat various maladies or toxic exposures, for example, like carbon monoxide, uh, and to be able to do that in, in a much more safer way. You know, or if someone's prone to seizures, perhaps they have a brain tumor and we've explored the use of hyperbaric oxygen therapy for cancer. But if you have a brain tumor, you may be already susceptible to having a seizure. But being in a state of therapeutic ketosis may give you much more leverage and, and decrease your potential for having a seizure. So you could potentially utilize a therapy that would otherwise be, uh, you know, counterindicated or contraindicated for that. So, so we work in a lot of different areas now. Uh, my main thing was studying high-pressure oxygen, the negative effects of it, and preventing that, 
And now we actually have studies where we're looking at hyperbaric oxygen therapy for different applications. Uh, right now they are more or less uh, you know, off-label use, things like hyperbaric oxygen uh, for cancer. But unless you've had radiation therapy, so it is FDA approved for radiation necrosis. But we think that uh, high pressure oxygen can hyperoxygenate tumor tissue, reverse tumor hypoxia, and shut off some of the gene drivers like HIF1 alpha, VEGF, and, and various factors that uh, contribute to cancer growth and proliferation. Also, by hyperoxygenating the tumor tissue, it increases reactive oxygen species to the point where you can overwhelm the cancer's antioxidant capacity and it sensitizes that cancer tissue to other forms of therapy, right? And radiation kind of works the same way. Radiation kills cancer cells through reactive oxygen species. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy just does it more gentle <laughs> in a more gentle fashion. So we're exploring the use of, so out of my military funded research came the observation because we have hyperbaric atomic force microscopy, hyperbaric laser scanning confocal microscopy. We have unique technologies that no one else really has in the world. It allowed us to, to look at cancer cells, for example, and we do human dermal fibroblasts and different, type, different types of cells. We observe that in cancer cells, they overproduce oxygen-free radicals uh, under graded levels of oxygen. And that oxygen was uh, would kill those cancer cells, whereas normal healthy cells were uh, resilient against uh, a similar level of oxygen. So that led us down a path, which was kind of getting off track in some ways, but uh, led us down a whole path of exploring hyperbaric oxygen and other modalities uh, for uh, cancer treatment as an adjuvant to, d to different therapies we're exploring right now. So. Uh, a little bit off topic, but that now I can say we have about a third to maybe half of the lab is studying cancer and different projects related to cancer and using hyperbaric oxygen in combination with other things. So that could be a whole nother podcast, but for, yeah. <laughs> but that was, that project evolved out of research and an observation from equipment that was funded by the Department of Defense with what's called a Durup grant. It, it allows us to buy equipment and develop and use that equipment for very novel, somewhat esoteric projects, you know, you know, looking at, you know, CNS oxygen toxicity or the mitochondria of neurons during a PO2 equivalent of a Navy SEAL dive operation sort of scenario. Wow, Tom, you are you're blowing my mind. You're all over so many amazing things. I think I didn't mean to go off in different different areas, but uh, I want maybe your your people to know that military research, you know, just like NASA research, has very broad applications, and a lot of the technologies that we use today, you know, GPS, other things, really evolved out of uh, military funded research. Yeah. And so for people who want all these benefits of this diet, what, what, are, what are other other benefits? I've heard you talk about things with austere environments, your own work with NASA, um, performance mm -hmm. for athletes. How, how does this, this change in your diet translate to so many of these things? And, and what are those things that people could look for? Sure. Like th this research is right now at its infancy. So the, the use of the ketogenic diet as a means to uh, enhance resilience in an extreme environment. 
So, you know, I've done enough experiments and rodent models to know that being in a state of therapeutic ketosis makes the rat what we call, you know, from our drug studies, a super rat. <laughs> so basically when you put a rat into a state of ketosis and elevate its ketones to the same level that would be achieved after me fasting seven days, that rat is 600% more resilient against oxygen toxicity seizures. And we've never been able to achieve that with any drug. Even, even like anti-seizure compounds that are so powerful that are not on the market yet because they have you know side effects, we can't even get that sort of neuroprotection from that. Uh, so this is work done you know about eight years ago. Uh, so the question is, uh, how do we leverage this technology? How do we develop it into a way that's palatable, that's tolerable, that is FDA approved? So we're working on that. Well, we're working on the use of these compounds for different childhood disorders, and that may set a precedent or a pathway for us to, you know, get some of the more powerful compounds for use in special operations community, things like that. So we do know that the ketogenic diet has a macronutrient ratio that's mostly fat, and ketones are uh, the fourth macronutrient, I like to say, because they are calorie-containing substances. When we consume them, if we ate nothing else, and studies on dogs have been done where you consume something like 1,3-butanediol, and it can sustain performance on a treadmill for for a long time and that compound is not ketones are not classified as a macronutrient yet <laughs> so there are carbohydrate carbohydrates proteins and, and fat right so they are i think of them as a water soluble fat molecule that can readily cross the blood brain barrier so the advantages to the warfighter or nasa you know personnel would be the energy density is quite higher right so the ketogenic diet if we're just looking at macronutrient um profile and I've had some of the engineers do calculations on a four to six man crew to Mars and back it ends up saving about two large SUVs full of weight <laughs> so and food if it's a two one and a half or two year mission so that that's a significant amount of weight when because the energy density you have nine calories per gram as you know for for fat and four calories per gram for carbohydrates and uh, protein so just shifting the macronutrient ratio instead of 70 percent fat or carbohydrates you make that 70 percent fat like right there you are more than doubling sort of the energy density right so major major logistical <laughs> advantages which uh, the engineers love, you know. Uh, I'm interested in more of the, more of it as a bio, sort of a biological countermeasure against those environments, which could be the undersea environment, as you know, hypoxia or hypobaric hypoxia at altitude. Um, so there is a satiety factor too. So when you're adapted, when your body is fat adapted and what we call keto adapted, the uh, you don't get hungry. So you can, uh, in the absence of food, or if you're in austere conditions, and your blood glucose levels drop, you are going to have brain fog and a pretty dramatic, predictable decrease in cognitive and physical performance. If you are adapted to ketones, 
the ketone levels, when they're elevated in your blood and you go hypoglycemic, you're asymptomatic for hypoglycemia. So you can, even in subjects that were fasted for you know 40 days and they injected them with insulin, they could re you know readily do cognitive you know function tests and be fine. So that in and of itself, <laughs> I think is uh, is a major advantage. Obviously, a major advantage is, and there's no other fuel that I know of that could really do that. Uh, you know that that could make you asymptomatic for hypoglycemia when there's an absence of food availability. Our bodies kind of do that naturally when we fast. You know, uh, but being keto adapted allows you to do that very quickly. And once you've done the ketogenic diet and go back to a high carbohydrate diet and then go back to a ketogenic diet, you make ketones about twice as fast because you've upregulated a lot of the enzymatic pathways, ketolytic enzymes and transporters that readily, it's almost like you activate a genetic program that we, we call it, we call it metabolic memory. You know, when you work out in the gym and you work up to, you know, a 500 pound deadlift, it might take you like, you know, 10 years to do that. Right. But then you stop for six months and you get back in the gym again and about six or seven, eight weeks, you could get back up to that. Five. So your metabolism, I think, and this is stuff we're looking at now, it's kind of the same way. Once you've acclimated your body to be keto adapted, that you can readily go in and out. Uh, we're starting to see that uh, it has not been studied. So what I'm saying here. I guess I'll have to say speculation, but as a scientist, you know, I've done it on myself and we have some rat data, you know, hopefully we'll publish that soon with, with our colleagues. So the satiety factor, ketones are anti-catabolic. That's their evolutionary function. If we did not go into a state of ketosis, we would catabolize all our gluconeogenic amino acids in our skeletal muscle and we'd waste away in about two weeks and die probably of cardiac failure. But because we have essentially an endless supply of body fat, even a lean person has like 20 to 30,000 calories of body fat, that body fat's liberated, converted to ketones, and then those ketones are profoundly anti-catabolic. So they prevent many of the proteolytic pathways and that they are very protein sparing, we say. So that's their function. So the satiety factor, the energy density, the protein sparing, uh, and some of the stuff that we're looking at now with NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations, uh, I was on a crew member for 22, which is working with astronauts in an undersea environment where we sort of uh, are looking at a, a variety of different things. And my wife will be on uh, NEMO 23, and that's coming up. We're preparing for that. So I've noticed in myself that the requirement for sleep is less, about slightly less, maybe about 30, 30 minutes less. And the percentage of deep sleep is higher. So instead of getting, you know, uh, 60 minutes of deep sleep each night or 70 minutes, uh, if I'm out of ketosis, if I'm in ketosis, I routinely get about 90 minutes of deep sleep to two hours of deep sleep, 220 minutes. Uh, my sleep is very deep and my sleep architecture uh, my sleep timing is less and my sleep architecture is more. And then I've seen a lot of sleep data from people out there suggesting something's going on. So it needs to be kind of studied and also stress. So, uh, and we've already have several publications on this and another one that we recently submitted showing using an elevated plus maze, which is used by pharmaceutical companies to evaluate, uh, anti-stress or, or evaluate the fear response in, in rodent models. We noticed early on that it was easier to handle 
rats and mice that were in a state of ketosis. They didn't have this fear response. They weren't trying to bite you. So if you use an elevated plus maze where a rat kind of goes out on a catwalk and they don't like heights, they don't like the, they can they can stay out in the open arm or they can go into the closed arm where it's safe. And rats have a natural tendency to explore. That's and humans have a natural tendency to explore. So when they're in a state of, of nutritional ketosis, they stay in the open arm, I think about twenty-five to thirty percent more. And they explore their environment, the novel environment, whether so that's the implication there. For humans, it's uh, for people who have like PTSD, maybe like social anxiety and things like that. We think, especially for PTSD, we think that uh, being in a state of nutritional ketosis helps balance the neuropharmacology of the brain. By It does this by elevating GABA to glutamate ratio, by activating uh, glutamic acid decarboxylase, the GAD 65 and 67 enzymes. So you don't have to know all that. But it changes the neuropharmacology of the brain to make you more relaxed. It's actually hitting things and receptors that actually maybe hit you know, in a more abrupt fashion with alcohol, uh, but it's doing it, you know, naturally. It's, you know, more GABAergic activity is a more, you know, brain stabilizing, calming activity. And we're also looking at the adenosine receptor and serotonergic systems. But the thing that jumps out and why it may have an anti-seizure effect is that you are taking a potentially uh, hyper-excitable uh, neurotransmitter that's actually, it could be neurotoxic in the context of traumatic brain injury, PTSD and seizures, that would be glutamate. So glutamate is converted to GABA through an enzyme called glutamic acid decarboxylase. Ketosis activates that enzyme, so you convert more of the stress, you know, anxiety, hyperactivity neurotransmitter to a more brain-stabilizing, calming neurotransmitter. So that's firmly worked out, and we're working out the details as to you know what exactly what receptors or overlap with serotonergic, adenosinergic, and all these other things. So we're working out that pharmacology. So from a warfighter perspective, from an astronaut perspective, you know the uh, energy density you know takes ten, twenty thousand dollars per pound to get something up in space. Uh, satiety factor, anti-catabolic factor, uh, sleep and stress, and we're also now. We can't really talk about it, but we are doing studies now looking at physical performance and cognitive performance. Uh, from my perspective, I'm interested in physical and cognitive, especially cognitive performance in the context of extreme environments. So you can do this task at one atmosphere of pressure, right? Some, you know, reaction time or, or critical thinking task, and there's different tests that we use for that. Can you go to, you know, 18,000 feet and do the same task uh, or 20,000 feet or whatever, hypoxic? Uh, there's a very predictable, uh, you know, impairment that will be, you know, conferred upon the person or, you know, following this uh, cognitive function task. Can we preserve that under under extreme environments, under the in the undersea environment as it pertains to nitrogen narcosis? high pressure nervous system uh, activity, things like that. So that's kind of what we're doing now in rodent models. I mean, we will look at the activity under ambient conditions, but we also put them into these extreme environments and see if we can preserve, you know, make them more resilient in that environment. And we're vetting out various types of strategies to induce nutritional ketosis and finding out 
what can rapidly go to the field. So as far as, you know, tolerability, safety, safety is probably the big one. And, uh, you know, is it something I can put in a container or put in a little five hour energy size thing and have a couple hundred calories where I can consume that and that will give my body uh, a superior alternative form of energy that has a host of other uh, things. And it's likely not going to be a single agent, but it's likely going to be a formula. So now we're working with different formulas. It's encouraging that a single agent can have a profound effect. But we think that the real, you know, the greater effect can be when you start mixing these things together and adding some cofactors. But we're very encouraged by just a single agent has outperformed all the drugs that we've, you know, that have ever been tried for, for anesthesia. So we're, you, you're, we're probably going to take that agent and combine it with various other things uh, to make it more tolerable, palatable, and more efficacious. Wow. Yeah, the, the possibilities of, of the ketogenic diet in a pill or a shot or something like that are huge. In, in I the... was skeptical. <laughs> I, I was pretty skeptical in the beginning, but the military actually wanted something that can be consumed just prior to emission. And, you know, and they're looking at they didn't want to do the high fat diet. Now our our views have changed to the high fat diet over the last 10 years. So that could be revisited. Uh, but they really wanted to. It wasn't my sort of decision on this. They really wanted a, a key. They wanted to induce therapeutic level ketosis independent of dietary restriction. That was that was what was told to me. And I was like, oh, how am I going to do that? So I saw that NIH was working, that Oxford was working. So I visited, you know, those places and met with scientists. Uh, one of them, uh, Dr. Richard Veach, he was the graduate student of Hans Kreb. <laughs> so one of his best students, he's at the NIH and was actually funded by DARPA with a lot of money to develop a ketone ester for warfighter performance. So, so we, you know, tested that compound and, Instead of just focusing on one compound, which most labs do, you know, we study everything and find out what works and we throw away what doesn't work. And then we focus on developing novel compounds, you know, testing what's already out there, but also uh, developing new compounds that have, that are more powerful, more dense and more uh, have greater ability to be consumed and tolerated. Uh, so we're at that now. Some of the things are, are highly uh, palatable and tolerable, but they tend to be the, the sort of, you know, less potent agents. So the potency of a compound is almost inversely proportional to <laughs> its tolerability. So <laughs> as these ketone esters, as you have like a monoester, or diester, or a triester, and in different compounds, they tend to get increasingly more uh, aversive in, in taste and tolerability. So we are working on, that's why formulating is very, very important mm -hmm. to us. And we're doing that in rats now. And, and also I, I test things on myself too sometimes. So <laughs> yeah, the, the end of one experiments, you're famous. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So thinking from the perspective of, of your, your day-to-day -day guy in the Navy who wants, who sees all these potential benefits, who sees the idea of, you know, I'm going out on the ship and I'd love to be able to um, you know, if I have to go a while without food to maintain performance, uh, you know, to get that, that deep sleep, even if I'm not going to get a lot of sleep, all, all these things that you're talking about. And now uh, a lot of the folks that I work with, they fly in a particular aircraft that just got aerial refueling capabilities. So now their missions go from four hours to eight hours in a plane with, you know, no coffee maker, no microwave, nothing like that. Yeah. How can a normal person take 
this kind of stuff that we have right now, the technology we have right now, into a shipboard environment and, and get these benefits? So I'll approach it first from the perspective of diet and from time-restricted eating protocol, right? So intermittent fasting, that's a big thing, right? Uh, I like to call it time-restricted eating, right? So I talked about when you fast or do the ketogenic diet and then you go off the diet and then go back into fasting again, you're, you adapt much quicker to uh, fasting. You could preserve your cognitive and physical performance, you know, because your body starts making ketones faster. Uh, so I would suggest that guys do not not the ketogenic diet, but do intermittent fasting. A good protocol would I think is you know six six hours of eating and eighteen hours of fasting. So for me today is a day I'm intermittent fasting. I will start eating maybe at about three p.m. and I will finish eating. I'll have a nighttime snack at nine p.m. Right, it will be my last meal. And I basically just skip breakfast and I'll skip lunch. Sometimes I start at like 1 p.m. and finish at like 7 p.m. And that's six hours of eating. And I'll typically eat maybe two meals and maybe a snack. And then that 18 hours of fasting does put us in a mild state of ketosis, even if we're not like, you know, on a ketogenic diet. But if you do low carb or if you eat ketogenic during that eating window, then you, you're kind of always getting some of the benefits of ketosis. When you start eating again, you still maintain you know, a mild state of ketosis, and then you get sort of the benefits of fasting. So that coaxes your body into being what we call fat and keto adapted. So if you take that individual and you take away and you have limited food availability in an austere environment, that individual will have better access to uh, her, his brain will be, his or her brain will be more resilient to uh, hypoglycemia and also have a greater capacity to liberate uh, fatty acids from adipose to preserve their energy, cognitive, physical performance uh, under high energy demands. So that that's sort of the ad advantage right there. So so that's that's like low tech, right? That's like you, you know your macronutrient ratios and and time restricted eating, and then you have exogenous ketone supplementation. Right. So this could be something that's in like a, a little five hour energy kind of thing. And it's uh, a very energy dense formula, perhaps of ketogenic fats and exogenous ketone uh, mineral ketones, which could be beta hydroxybutyrate attached to sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium, which is a salt. So it gives your body minerals. And then there's different esters that could be you know, utilized, and there's a whole toolbox of esters that we're studying right now. The important thing is that you know, you could drop guys off for five or six days into an area and let them do their mission, and they could carry on their bodies <laughs> you know, various small vials of this stuff and be able to consume it, and it could be formulated in a way to give them uh, not only a burst of energy but sustained energy over – uh, a fairly significant uh, period of time if they were to get a blast injury traumatic brain injury or if they were going to do an oxygen rebreather dive uh, if they're going to hypoxia like they they would potentially have neuroprotection under all those different circumstances and may be able to maintain cognitive resilience a little bit better too under those circumstances so these are things that we are doing in animal models that we want to 
do in human studies. So the trick with human studies is finding the optimal formula that they can tolerate, the dosing, the individual, you know, and it takes, you know, rats, you have an inbred strain of rat and they're all kind of the same and the data looks great and they have humans and this guy's eating, you know, basically, uh, I don't know, monsters and, and, you know, sugary drinks and Snickers bars and another guy's already doing paleo as you, you know, he may respond differently. So we really need to uh, get funding to be able to do this in a very controlled environment because the payoff could be pretty big as far as warfighter performance. It'll probably start in the special operations community and maybe work its way down. Um, with the idea is that you have this as a tool in the toolbox. You know, I'm not all about replacing what the military is going to eat as far as their nutrition because that's not going to happen. But to let them know that a ketogen or low carb eating strategy is a strategy that may have these benefits and uh, and to make it available for those guys who want to do it. You know, uh, knowing what we know now, the rodent data is very compelling and the stuff that we're doing now is very compelling and it's already moved to, to human studies that are ongoing. Um, so I see a lot of potential there is using nutri uh, nutrition as a performance, not only as a performance enhancer, but something that can en enhance the safety too. That's the primary objective, the safety. But out of those safety studies, also led us down paths where we're looking at performance and performance resilience. So there's different ways to do it. Like I could talk about, you know, different types of formulas for exogenous ketone formulas, but I think we're a little bit too early yet in describing the ingredients in those formulas. You know, we're in the basic science concept of that, but time restricted eating, low carb, ketogenic diet, exogenous ketones, maybe all in combination too, right? So maybe not to do one or the other, but these things likely have either additive or synergistic effects when used together. Yeah, so many tools in the toolbox, like you said. And for people who are in general, just trying to see what works for them and what doesn't, you're, you're famous for these end of one experiments where you're, you're testing yourself, you're pushing your limits, and now so many people are wearing monitoring devices, they have access to lots of data. What advice would you have to people who want to experiment and to see what's optimal for them. And maybe, could you also tell the story of your seven-day fast and the deadlifting? <laughs> yeah, that gets around. Uh, Tim Ferriss mentioned, I didn't know he was going to mention that on the podcast, but I guess Peter Atia told him, told him about the story. Uh, so, okay, so monitoring. So, right, so what, what can the person out there listening right now do? They can go to their local CVS, Walgreens, drugstore, uh, Amazon and buy a glucose and ketone monitoring system, right? And they can simply, it would be good to know their glucose response to a meal. That's very important from a health perspective. You don't want to be, you don't want to have glucose excursions up to like 200 milligrams per nanogram. You know, you want to stay, you know, under 120. So uh, I would say try intermittent fasting, perhaps the time-restricted eating protocol with low-carbohydrate diet, perhaps starting at 100 grams or less per day and then working down to 50. And over a period of time, you can check your blood ketone levels. And once you're above 0.5, you are clinically in a state of ketosis. And for a diabetic, a type 1 diabetic person who's not on a ketogenic diet, that could be dangerous. But for us, that that's a good thing. So diabetic ketoacidosis is very, very different than nutritional ketosis. And my PhD student, uh, Andrew Kutnick, did a TEDx talk uh, that you can look up 
which talks about that subject, a type 1 diabetic using nutritional ketosis to manage his disorder. So that's all I'll say about that. But I get a lot of questions about type 1 diabetes. So I just, you know, refer to Andrew's uh, TEDx talk. So for nutritional ketosis, you want to be 0.5 or above, ideally around the 1 to 2 millimolar range. Check your ketones uh, typically later in the day when you've had some some ketogenic meals in you or you're fasting and see how you feel. And also maybe when you're not measuring, see how you feel subjectively when you have the most energy, when you have the most lucidity and mental mental uh, resilience, I guess you could say. Uh, I When I get into these phases, I'll do a lot of writing or a lot of sort of tasks that require a lot of, you know, cognitive. And I will tend to check my, my glucose and ketones. And I typically find that my ketones are in like the one to two and maybe upwards to the three range. And some people I know actually get much higher. There's people in the lab that are like running four or five and other people that are on a strict ketogenic diet and can barely even make it to that one millimolar range. So everybody's going to be a little bit different. So buy a meter online. They're relatively cheap, under 50 bucks. The strips, if you search around, you can get them for anywhere between a dollar to two dollars a strip and and get some some data on yourself, experimenting yourself. And then from there, you can start evaluating other things. So I use an aura sleep uh, ring and for sleep and the aura ring monitors a number of different factors. Most importantly for me, it, it's a pretty good measurement of your sleep time and sleep architecture, like how much, you know, delta sleep you're getting and REM sleep and things. And uh, and I we use this for our, our NASA extreme environment mission operations sort of mission too on the crew members. So it's a very hardy technology. I mean, you can train with it and it'd be hard to break it actually. Uh, so monitoring your sleep with a Fitbit or an Aura Ring, measuring your glucose and ketone levels, uh, I think is a good place to start, right? And then we all have certain things, like I know my strength, I keep a, a training journal, or used to keep you know, very detailed records of training journal. And then you could, whether you're a runner or a cyclist or whatever, you know, start monitoring this, get your baseline, initiate the ketogenic diet or uh, exogenous ketones or intermittent fasting, whatever you want to do, and uh, monitor your, your blood ketone levels and then assess those things that you're interested in, you know, your performance times, not just subjectively, but objectively, right? And monitor your sleep because your sleep will be a factor in those, you know, performance too. Get general blood work, CBC, CMP, uh, you know, do get a lot of baseline data because it's going to be important. I think for me, I never thought I would continue with the diet. I was just doing it from an intellectual perspective in that I wanted to understand uh, what it felt like for my brain to run off a different energy source. So I became obsessed with this about 10 years ago. And, uh, and I was very inspired by the work of George Cahill at Harvard Medical School where he fasted subjects for 40 days. And, uh, and was able to, I had some conversations with uh, Dr. Cahill. He passed away in 2012, and a lot of the icons are up in their 80s and 90s, pushing 100 now, and many of them are still alive. They did uh, go on to, to live extremely productive lives and uh, contributed massively to metabolic physiology. We just don't have the metabolic physiologists nowadays that we had back in the day. But uh, I was really inspired by his work and actually wanted to fast for seven days, not 40 days. 
So uh, I did uh, quite a lot of blood work before, during, and after, and was able to get my blood glucose down uh, uh, to a level that was significantly below my ketone levels. So my ketones were at, at the end stage about double what my blood glucose was. And because ketones can readily cross the blood-brain barrier, we can say that uh, roughly two-thirds of my brain energy was being run off ketones. And during that time, I actually worked on a lot of grants and was very productive and actually getting got funding off of one of the big grants I worked on during that time. I was teaching and even at the end of it, I went to the gym and tested my strength and found that like my strength did go down a little bit, uh, but I didn't push myself too hard because I knew, you know, I was thinking I'm fragile. I, I just wanted to be kind of uh, cautious as to moving weight under that kind of condition. But I did find, which was really interesting to me, that my strength did not take a big hit. Uh, and I was semi keto adapted because for about a half a year to a year or so, I had been tinkering with the ketogenic diet, the clinical ketogenic diet, and it really made fasting pretty easy. The third day I was kind of hurting, mm -hmm. but after seven days, I mean, I was lucid enough to be sharp and give lectures and, uh, and had the energy to move, you know, five, six plates on a deadlift. You know, I never thought going into this, I would have never, I thought, you know, after four or five days, you'd be so weak. You, it'd be hard to stand up, you know, that you'd have, and I did have orthostatic hypotension in the beginning. I'd stand, so I had to get, uh, I would have soup broth, but no calories, you know, I'd have sodium and water and fluids and things like that to stay hydrated. For, for those uh, who don't know what orthostatic hypotension is, that's when you stand up real quick and you feel dizzy, just for the listener. Yeah. That, that happened a lot with me in the beginning. Yeah, I get that when I fast too. Yeah, your insulin goes down, right? So insulin's role is sodium reabsorption in the kidneys, right? So if your your insulin level's down, you're dumping a lot of sodium. Mm -hmm. So I think in the beginning, I was drinking a lot of water but not getting the sodium that I needed. And once I started getting the sodium in, it's like I started kind of waking up. My blood pressure came back up again. Uh, and uh, I remember kind of sodium loading before, you know uh, – I had to do a thinking task or, or workout or something like that. But I would go for like long walks, you know, at the time, just very easy walks and that my ketone levels would get up. I come back and my glucose would be in a range that the meter wouldn't even detect. It would just say low. It would just say low and it wouldn't even detect it. And uh, and I tinkered with a few things to get my, my glucose down really low. I don't know exactly how low I got it because the meter wouldn't wouldn't register it and and my ketone's pretty high. And, uh, and realize that um, this really does make you resilient. Your body feels kind of numb in a way, like, but at the same time, your senses are heightened. So I would go for a walk and I could smell things or maybe even see things uh, sharper than I could, could otherwise. So now I got the full understanding of when, when people fast and they say it brings them to another level. Uh, and I think the more you do it, the easier it gets and probably the more benefits you derive from it too. So, I mean, you could tell like, major things were happening in your body, <laughs> you know, major things are happening like autophagy. Uh, of course, like you, when you force your brain to go from glucose to ketones, luckily the brain is incredibly metabolically flexible in it's fuel utilization and it can make that switch. Uh, not everybody can. I mean, some people may have a harder time than others, but like I said, the more you do it, the easier it gets and the more benefits you derive from it. And I think it can be a very, uh, I mean, I did it for scientific sort of reasons, but it's also sort of a personal 
uh, journey too. So you, you learn about a lot about yourself, what you can and can't take, you know, how resilient you really are. And you think, man, if I was dropped off, uh, I got lost or something and had limited food availability, you know, at least I know, you know, I could, I could get through it and not die after, you know, two or three days of not eating. Um, so that was, uh, I encourage people to do that, but I don't make the recommendation. I'm not a medical doctor, right? So <laughs> absolutely, not do it. So. Yeah, no, no, uh, no medical official advice dispensed here, but yeah. a general, general thing. And you, you talked about how there are these great scientists who inspire you, who have have made a huge contribution, and you are someone who is also very active. You are on this big journey. You are making contributions left and right. What is it that drives you to keep to keep pushing on all these fronts? Um. I think there's a lot of things, you know, that drive me. Uh, my students drive me. I mean, seeing their passion for science and and looking back and thinking, you know, remembering how fascinated I was, for example, with the brain. Like I was fascinated, like what is a thought? Like what is that? So I would, as a neuroscientist, uh, as a PhD, I did patch clamp electrophysiology, which is kind of sort of a technique where you record directly from neurons and how they communicate to one another and you delve very uh, mechanistically into all that. So uh, asking questions and being very curious and uh, and I think some from some extent there's a sort of a selfish, if you want to call it that, I want to be able to learn and extract information from the body of knowledge that's out there, but also from my own experience that I could apply to myself. And I get so enthusiastic and even giddy that I want other people around me to follow it too and family members because you become so aware of the benefits of some of these things, even from a, you know, especially from a nutritional standpoint where my emphasis was really on drugs in the beginning and I was kind of more, and I'm, we still do drug research, but this idea that altering your metabolic physiology through changing your macronutrient profile can change fuel utilization in your body and that can have this host from cognitive to anti-inflammatory effects to potentially tumor suppressing effects to anti-seizure effects like that that you can do that that you have uh you know you are empowered to be able to do that just by you know the food that you eat or the different supplements too that that could potentially be used. So I'm I'm pretty motivated by that, and I, I really feel, not necessarily the case for everybody, but because uh, I don't I don't think some of the pioneers in this area necessarily fasted themselves or experimented on themselves, but a lot of them did, and uh, I feel that you really have to immerse yourself into what you're doing, and almost be part of what you're doing, to really have that enthusiasm to the point where you're so excited it's hard to fall asleep or you wake up and you're like kind of you know what's going to happen today like what will this blood work show what will this measurement like how will this day go so to be so immersed in your research that it becomes sort of part of who you are and and part of your envisioned contribution right so you want to uh uh, and, and also guides my research. So a lot of the things that I do on myself or maybe see others do, I get a lot of feedback from people too. That actually guides my research. Someone will email me about this or that. And that has actually guided, you know, various research projects that we have. So every day I wake up and I'm excited. I don't know what's going to happen. Like I'm usually testing something new on myself. My students have, uh, they're in the lab now, you know, in the trenches doing research. I get to come in and 
and they have, you know, so much enthusiasm about what they do. So that's kind of what drives me on a day-to-day basis and being able to look forward and actually uh, make, contribute to uh, the scientific body of knowledge to use food as medicine. And it doesn't have to be a macro, it could be like, uh, there's companies out there that are creating what I call engineered food, whether it be a cookie or uh, a brownie where they're not only changing the macronutrient profile, but they're incorporating different ingredients that make it like a functional food, whether it be uh, a prebiotic fiber or probiotics or uh, an alternative energy substrate. I mean, one of the first things I used was uh, Cytomax when I rode my bike. It had alpha L polylactate in it, which was sort of that got me interested in alternative fuels. And this is going back 15 years ago. And creatine monohydrate. You know, I started using that in 1991 or 92 and, and always stayed up on the literature. So I think of ketones as kind of like the next creatine. And, but much more versatile. So it can be neuroprotective. It can make your, it enhances your body's ATP production, but it has a, a, a lot of advantages and a utility that something creatine doesn't have. But, but mixing them two together would be sort of one of the formulas that I'm working on now. Like, you know, putting various <laughs> alternative energy substrates together and cofactors, which allow you to use, use these things in a, in a more enhanced fashion, I would say. So that's what's, I mean, that's an exciting thing. And also cancer. I mean, a lot of what we do, I didn't talk about it much. What could be more exciting than killing cancer cells? You know, our soldiers go out to war to kill the enemy to protect us. And we kind of, I kind of think of my PhD students as sort of soldiers, warriors that are kind of attacking cancer cells with their, the therapies that they're developing together as a group and testing in cells, in tissues, in animal models, and we're moving it to human clinical trials. So we're sort of a, on a war against cancer in a very uh, targeted fashion from a metabolic standpoint. Yeah, and, and everyone knows someone affected by cancer, so it's, it's such a, a universal cause, and, and it's, it's great that we've got you on the team. Um, and the people, the students, many of the people in the lab were motivated from a personal perspective, and that's why they chose you know, their particular projects too. That's often the case. Oh yeah, I can get that. Don, my final question. If you were talking to a military leader who wants to create a culture where people have this intellectual curiosity that you display, this self-experimentation, this drive, what suggestion would you give them? If I was talking to a military leader to mm-hmm. embrace this culture, uh, I would ask that military leader and try to persuade them uh, to do it themselves and to evaluate whether they thought personally that this was a viable strategy. You know, so I would do something as simple as time restricted eating. If you have, I was locked into a pattern of not only eating like five or six meals a day, I would eat like seven or eight meals a day, wake up in the middle of the night and eat a protein bar or shake and go back because I thought I needed that. So uh, I come from that mentality, but uh, when you liberate your, yourself from these frequent feedings uh, or free yourself from it, it becomes very liberating, right? When you free yourself from that eating pattern. So when it comes to nutrition, maybe uh, 
you know, we, we do a lot of different things, but the most simplest low tech thing I can think of is to say, hey, if you haven't tried it before, maybe try time restricted eating. Don't do it every day. Maybe just do it like twice a week and see how you feel. And the more they do it, the easier it'll get. And then a lot of that great feeling that they have towards the end of the fast, that's actually due to beta-hydroxybutyrate, the ketone body that I study. So, And that's conferring many of the uh, health benefits like anti-inflammatory effects and you know, uh, epigenetic effects and things like that. So that's, that may be a gateway <laughs> to get them into experimenting uh, with an eating paradigm that uh, without question has major logistical practical advantages to guys in the field from a physical, cognitive, and maybe even anti-anxiety uh, perspective. And we know, you know, if you're edgy and you're jacked up on caffeine and edgy, so, you know, I go to the range, I shoot quite often and I experiment on things. You know, I don't, I don't talk about those things on podcasts usually, but, uh, but not only the gym, but I'll go to the range and I'll evaluate what gets me better scores on my shooting tests. Right. And I could tell you that the things that I talked about and things that I mentioned, uh, start doing it and start, if you go to the range, start recording your, your scores and you're going to see that too. And that's, you know, something I, I never really talked about, but I think from their perspective is a very practical, uh, benefit to the, to the worst thing to do for a soldier that has, uh, a gun <laughs> shooting is to be sleep deprived and jacked up on caffeine. So, and I've actually been in that situation where I have evaluated my shooting ability under those conditions and I was all over the place, but being on Jack jacked up on caffeine, it gives you the confidence. You actually think you're shooting well until you actually, it gives you like a false confidence. But, uh, but when you're in a state of fasting ketosis or nutritional ketosis and you've maintained that, I guarantee not only physical cognitive performance, but things like things are very important. Your decision making and shooting performance will will improve. So I would say give it a try. But they kind of for me, I can read all the studies in the world, but I needed to actually experience it myself to have the belief. And that belief through self-experimentation led to uh, a further enthusiasm to pursue this path as my career. So over the last 10 years, that's, that's what I've been doing. Everybody, that was Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, professor at the University of South Florida, researcher of Navy SEALs, and NASA aquanaut. And if you want to help us get more great guests like this on the show, then be sure to give us a review on iTunes, and we'll catch you next time. And one more time for the lawyers. This show in no way constitutes official medical advice, this is not a substitute for speaking to your doctor. This does not represent the official views or policies of the United States Navy or the United States government.